Yeah, it's pretty interesting how the Lord has worked in my life over the years, and I've kind of felt it fitting me just kind of give you guys a little bit of background to how what the Lord has done, and because all of us have different backgrounds, and you know, religious backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, just life experiences, and it, I find it it's a miracle how the Lord has brought all of us here today in this place to celebrate, because you came here because this is, what kind of conference? A grace conference. I mean, at the end of the day, I've never been to too many grace conferences, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, it's not, I mean, grace, really? I mean, does, it seems like nowadays, you know, I could understand eschatology, if we were talking about end times, you know, we were talking about biblical finance, we were talking about blessings, how to get, how to open the windows of heaven and have God pour out the blessings on your finances, your life, or, and all these different things, uh, you know, would fill up a room, but we're talking about grace, because I'm convinced, and I'm, I know that Brother Justin is convinced that, that grace really takes the floor, that's what it's all about, it's the main course, it's, you know, you know if you just focus on grace now, and you're going to focus on something different, well, you're going to mess yourself up, and you know, my background is I, I got saved as a um, 14-year-old uh, teenager. Seems like I got to go down just, it's kind of hollow just a little bit. Bring it up closer. Right here. There we go. That's a little better. Just turn me down a little bit. But I got saved as a teenager. I didn't grow up in a, a predominantly religious home at all. I had good parents. They worked. My dad had his own cabinet business. And I had a an aunt and an uncle that were... You know, the weird people in the family. They were the Christians. And they, they were the ones that, you know, every time I would visit, they would take me to church and VBS. And, you know, ever since I was a little kid, well, when I was a teenager, the Holy Spirit worked on my heart, and I trusted Christ as my Savior. And I got through high school and got into, started going to church regularly. Um, and as I graduated high school, felt the call to preach went to Bible college. So from 18 till about 33 years old, my life was engulfed in ministry. I mean, just, I went five years of Bible college. It took me five years to get a four-year degree because I'm that good. Amen. So, and, but I got married while I was there and come to, you know, come to find out. I mean, it was, that was the whole reason that God sent me to the college I went to. I went to a college in, uh, it's right outside of Chicago. Is predominantly, I say predominantly, it was an, an, a fundamental independent Baptist college. If you were to choose an independent Baptist college, we, we prided ourselves of being the Marines. I mean, we were the ones that were getting the job done. And, but I, I, I'm not complaining about that because the Lord sent me there. And the Lord knew what I needed. And he, I needed a good wife, and I found my wife there. And, and, and praise the Lord, I'm glad that I did. And then I, I came, I had the privilege of coming back to my home area, and I was an associate pastor at a church locally, and it was just a thriving church. I mean, all the hallmarks that you would want, that, that is, we prescribe to as growing, thriving ministry, that's what that was. It was building programs. It was, you know, you know all the programs that you could, you know, I was in charge of fundraising, and, and we were, if we weren't remodeling something, we were building something, or we were raising money to build something else. So, I mean, for... You know, 10 years, I was engulfed in just nonstop ministry. I remember my first three years of working on this particular ministry, 
I did not have a day off at all, none. I worked, you know, you know seven days a week. If it was not on me working on something uh, in the church, I was doing or operating some type of a ministry. And after about three years, man, it just it really wore down on me. And, and I had to kind of take a step back and took a step back and worked uh, in secular work for my dad for just a little while. Then I got back into serving ministry. And I knew throughout this whole process, I knew something just wasn't quite right. And the Spirit of God was throwing red flags up, but I just, just kept going because my formal training in ministry was... You just gut it out. We, our approach to ministry was we were the Marines. You know what I mean? You don't complain. Hoorah! You know what I mean? You're just going to go through. And, and I tried that approach. But me, looking back now, I can see the, the little truths that the Spirit of God gave me. And it was just it, probably about five years ago. It was like, it was like everything came into focus. It was like, the, you know, the, well, I mean, it's revelation, but... All those little pieces of the puzzle came together, and it's been an amazing ride ever since. And for the first time, you know, the, the pressures that I deal with ministry, they're just not there. I mean, I have problems. Do you have problems? I have problems. You know what I mean? We all have problems, but ministry has taken on a whole new, it's, it's taken on a whole new life. It's because for the first time, I was tapped in, I'm tapped into the source of life now. And it's, I, used, I can't tell you the amount of anxiety that I would feel getting prepared to preach at a grace conference. You know what I mean? But I don't have anxiety. You know what I mean? You may have some anxiety for what you're about to hear. But, uh, but I don't have that anxiety anymore because I'm excited to be able to come up and share. And, and now, um, pastoring Gospel Life Fellowship, we got a, we got a good group of people. And, and our, our ministries... Um, kind of unique in the fact that I think where we're at now with our churches, we're, we're kind of rounding up lost sheep, people that have been hurt and people that have been damaged. And, and we're using the, the therapy of the gospel to minister to them and let them understand, look, the gospel is still good news. And, and it's, it's just been, been an amazing journey. And that's where we're at right now. And you know, the Lord may change that in the future. But today... I'm preaching at a grace conference, amen. Now, this message I'm going to preach to you is interesting because I remember when I first got saved, I heard a preacher preach on this topic, and I just thought to myself, I thought, wow, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. And all these years from when I first got saved and I heard it to now, I don't think I ever really quite understood it. But now that I'm looking at Scripture through the New Covenant lens, it, you know, I've revisited it again, and now it's just, it's just an amazing truth. And I want to be able to share that with you. I had two messages prepared. One was going to be dealing with church. But yesterday, Jeremy did a pretty good job talking about church. You know, and, 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 and that worked out pretty good. And the Holy Spirit said, well, I want you to preach this. This got it narrowed down. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Now, I am reading out of the King James, mainly because that's what I'm used to. And if you want, I'll pray in King James if you like, Brother Mark. You want me? I'll pray in King James if you want. We'll really get holy up in this place. You know what I mean? Do you? <laughs> no, honestly, I just, um, this Bible that I have was given to me by a close friend of mine when I 
when I got called to preach and I went to Bible college and I've had this Bible with me ever since. Funny story, while I, while I was at Bible college, the Bible got stolen. I, I mean, what kind of hypocrisy is that? <laughs> My Bible got stolen at Bible college. Somebody took it. And then about two years later, it, it found its way back to me. You know what I mean? It's like babe, you know what I mean? It, 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 you know, it, it just it found its way back, you know, so... Anyway, it's and I figured I'm gonna stick with it, but you know I don't have any. I'm not you know the it, the denomination I was in was so hardcore King James. Some even believe that if you didn't, you couldn't get saved at any other version of the Bible but a King James. Now that blows some of y'all socks off, but I'm just kind of letting you giving you an idea. Now some of you it doesn't, but just kind of give you the idea of, of of what I was kind of used to. But Hebrews chapter six. And we're going to read verses 10 to 20. It says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them and an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to what? Lie. He says, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have, and I want you to remember this statement, as an anchor of the soul. Now that's what it says in the King James. What is this? Is, what does it say in any of the other versions? Was it, somebody want to? Does it say? Does it say anchor of the soul in there? You know what I mean? Okay, good. What's that? Anchors for our lives. Okay. Well, an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's go, to the Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we're not alone. Lord, we may feel alone. There's times that I've felt very alone. But Lord, it's through the ministry of your spirit. It's through faith. I, I have to come. I, you, just because I feel alone doesn't mean that I am alone. That you're there. You said you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, I'm thankful to have your spirit. Your spirit is leading and guiding in all truth. And I'm thankful to know that the burden of those hearing the message this morning or getting a truth from the message doesn't come from me. It comes from you. Lord, I just want to be able to have the clarity this morning to say the things that I should say. And Lord, and to refrain from saying the things that I don't need to say. And Lord, I trust that your spirit can and will give revelation. Lord, we come here this morning to celebrate. To celebrate works that have already been done. And Father, we're just so thankful that we can meet together as your children. And we celebrate you as our Father. 
And Lord, we burn with passion in our hearts to be able to see those that are in bondage, to be able to have freedom and to be released. Because Lord, we believe we have the answer. We believe that the answer that, uh, the, 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 what plagues people so much in this world of the heartache and the pain and sin, and Lord, the loneliness that people feel can be answered with the good news of the gospel. And Father, I just pray that we can leave here rejoicing because of the works that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews is no doubt one of the most comprehensive books in the New Testament on New Covenant Christianity. It's just, it's unbelievable. When you start going through and, and you're studying the book of Hebrews, it really lays out what the New Covenant is. The author of Hebrews, many believe to be Paul, but it really doesn't matter, but was targeting Jews who felt trapped between the two covenants. And by the way, let me say this. I think, I, it's crazy as it may sound, I think the church right now is in the same position. We're trapped between two covenants, really. We, 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 we go to Jesus to get grace, but then we go to Moses to find out how we need to get blessings and how we need to live. And it's somewhere in between, depending on what denomination that you're in, we're trapped somewhere in between a hybrid of grace and law. And that was kind of my experience. And I think what we're seeing and what we're experiencing now with grace, and you're going to see more grace conferences in the future, because grace is not a topic. Grace is a fuel. And when you start introducing grace, we start seeing things about ourselves that we never saw were there before. We're starting to understand our identity in Christ. We're starting to tap into life for the very first time. I, I like how Paul describes in Romans 7. He says, I was told and taught for years that life was in the law. But I found the more I tried to go to law to get life, what did it do to him? He says, it slew me every time. For 12 years, I got slewed every day. And that's a King James word. I got slayed, wiped out. And I got up with a diligent, burning desire heart to do better, and I went out and got pummeled once again. And after going through this vicious cycle over and over and over, the Holy Spirit was like, are you done? Are you finished? Are you ready to, to get back to what the good news is all about? And man, it's, a, it's been an amazing journey. But let me say this, that we find here in Hebrews, we find Jews that are kind of trapped here. And the author of Hebrews is trying to sort this thing out and trying to get them to understand. The overall theme we find in Hebrews is Jesus is better. That's the theme. Guess what? Jesus is better. Likewise, there are some radical statements made about the Old Covenant. I mean, the author of Hebrews makes some statements that if you were a Jew at the time, it would have made the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It would have probably angered you. You would have had to step back and question, now hold on a second, that sounds a little unorthodox compared to what I'm used to. I mean, you're kind of beating up on Moses a little too much here. What are you talking about here? It, I mean, he made some pretty radical statements. For example... Uh, we see that Jesus is, uh, or, or let me say this, we see what Jesus is compared to throughout when he's making these comparisons about Jesus being better. And by the way, he's not talking about Jesus is just better than drugs and alcohol and loose living. You know what I mean? 
I mean, do, do we really have to tell the world, you know what I mean, that, you know, you don't go anywhere with loose love? I was telling somebody the other day about drugs. It's actually a co-worker of mine. And, you know, and, I, and the Lord gives me opportunities to minister to him. And it's like every now and then the, the clouds will, will clear. And there's like sun, a sun comes down and I, I'm able to share with him Christ. And then the clouds come back. You know what I mean? He goes back to the way, way things are. But we were, we were talking about drugs. And I said, you know, I said, I can't never think of a time where I would have, you know, I can never, when it comes down to drugs, I can never think of a time where it says, you know what? This situation would have worked out a whole lot better had they been stoned. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or had they been high. This would have been, if the, you know what, if we just would have all been drunk, this would have worked out a whole lot better. You know what I'm saying? I can't ever think of a time. And, and the world can look back and laugh at that. But Paul, or the author of Hebrews, wasn't trying to sort out these issues. These issues were a lot greater he was trying to sort out. Hebrews 1.4, we turn there. Now, how much time do I have? I was... The hour and a half was supposed to be the singing and me preaching, so I thought I had a whole hour and a half to preach. I thought, man, I'll be asleep by the time that's done. So, but no, I'm just kidding. Hebrews 1.4. We're talking about comparisons. Jesus is what? Jesus is better. And Hebrews, he says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Next, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. We're talking about Jesus being better. The overall theme of Hebrews. He says the law... Now here, here we go. Here is a controversial statement to a Judaizer. He says the law made nothing what? Perfect. Law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did by they which they draw nigh unto God. And then you go to verse uh, 22 of chapter 7. He goes, by so much was Jesus made the surety of a better testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. He says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And we're going to revisit those better promises. But... At the end of the day, Hebrews, comprehensive teaching and training on what the new covenant is. And we find that the overall theme is Jesus is what? Better. Not just Jesus himself, but what Jesus was able to accomplish with his life and his death and also his ministry and what we see happen. And if you're going to say Jesus is better, then by default, we, got to, we have to be comparing it to something else. And that's exactly what we see. You can't just say something is better without comparing it to something else. I mean, my father-in-law, for example, <laughs> has a cheesesteak restaurant. I don't know what y'all were saying, what y'all were thinking. I should, wrong time to pause and drink water. My father-in-law's from Philly. He has a local cheesesteak restaurant, and he's got the best cheesesteaks in town as far as I'm concerned. If you say, well, no, I know one better, we'll buy it, bring it over, and we'll try it, and I'll let you know. And I know if cheesesteaks are good, by the way. You know what I mean? So, you know, I've... if you're going to say it's better, you've got to be comparing it to something else. And he's from, he's from Philly, and he gets his rolls from Philly, and, and he gets, you know, he does it just like they did in Philly. 
And no, there's not cheese whiz on it because if you're a, 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 if you understand cheesesteaks, you don't put cheese whiz on a cheesesteak. But anyway, enough of that. Now, in the process of pleading the case for Christ and trying to get the Hebrews to put their full weight on the promises of the New Covenant, we find the author connecting many dots between the Old and the New Testament. And here we find one of these dots that he connected, and there's an amazing truth tucked away into this. And uh, so number one is this. We find that our hope is, is in promises, not performance. Isn't it amazing how you just said that? And that's number one on my list here. But our hope, and we're talking about hope, because hope is mentioned a lot in Hebrews, just in chapter 6 alone, we find that our hope is in promises, not in performances. And we look back at Hebrews chapter 6. Let me go back there. And uh, just we'll keep our place right there. But both the Old and the New Covenants were established on promises. The Old Covenant... Was uh, the old covenant was God's promise to bless man if they performed what was asked of them within the law? I mean, it was pretty simple. The, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, and he told them what the Ten Commandments were, and he says, "Look, if you obey them, you'll be what blessed. If you disobey them, you'll be cursed." And by the way, not only will you be cursed, we'll just probably kill you in the process. You see what I mean? Any questions? Any questions? Yeah, does that mean all of it? Yes, that means all of it, Bob. Just, you know what I mean? Anybody got any smart questions? You know what I mean? So, anyway, the, the promises were simple. It was a very simple covenant. Obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you'll be cursed and more likely we're going to kill you. Their hope within the old covenant was in their ability to perform what was asked of them. I mean, what was their focus on? Their behavior. Their focus was on them trying to live out and eke out life and trying to obey because they wanted to be blessed. They didn't want to be cursed. And they, wanted, they, they didn't want to have to deal with the wrath of God. And by the way, they would see it on occasion. You know what I mean? Poured out. Now, God did have times of mercy. But the reality was, that was the rules of engagement. It was man going to God and saying, God, we promise to keep all your statutes. And we see that cycle, that vicious cycle in the Old Covenant, don't we? Over and over and over, and then God would pour down his wrath on him, and finally they would get tired, and they'd be wore out, and they'd say, God, we're going to, we've come to the conclusion, we're just going to obey you now from now on. We're not going to disobey you at all. And how well did they do? They did terrible, didn't they? But the promises were simple. It was man's promises to God, and to try to obey God's covenant. Now, the burden, though, was on their ability to keep the promises made to God. But the problem with this is there's no faith. There's no faith in this process. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, I mean, we call that the hall of faith. And we have lots of uh, examples of old covenant believers who had moments they obeyed God. They did some pretty amazing things. And we find in the very beginning of Hebrews the definition of faith. 
We find a very, we find a very powerful statement. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like it's kind of important, isn't it? That faith is important. But we find also at the very end of Hebrews 11, there's a statement made. He says, and all these have obtained a good report by their faith, but they received not the promise. And we have that promise now in the new covenant. It's us. So through this whole process in the old covenant, this man promising to obey God, there was one missing ingredient. It wasn't faith. And it takes faith in order to please God. Now notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul makes this statement here. And in Galatians, Paul was trying to sort out law issues within the church. And he says this, he says, And the law is not of what? Faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. It takes faith in order to please God. In the whole law system, it's not faith. It was simple. If I do what God tells me to do, God's going to bless me. If I don't, God's going to curse me. Or I might even die in the process. It was my promises. It was man's promises to God in order to get blessed. Now, we find in Hebrews chapter 6 that our hope is still placed in promises. But not in our promises to God. Think about this. We're, we're, we are under a better covenant built upon better promises, aren't we? But what's problem now with the church is we don't understand that. Now, we do. But I believe churchianity is, as Brother Thrash said last night, we say that term, we use that term at our church, churchianity, a lot. There, there's, you know, I believe a lack of understanding, and I know, Brother Paul, you're on the same page. The whole ministry is trying to get people to understand the nature of the new covenant, and how liberating it is. That's what the church needs. We don't need more buildings. We don't need more buildings. Now, we do need a building, actually. No, I'm just kidding. No, we don't. We, are, we got everything God wants us to have. But it's, it, we don't need more real estate. God's not in the real estate market. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not limited by square footage and buildings. And he's definitely not limited by programs. You see what I mean? We need more programs. But that's what the church believes we need more of today. What we need are the understanding the real promises of God and the promises of the new covenant. That's what we need. But we're ignorant to these things. But we find here that our promises today are built, uh, are, are built on better promises. Uh, look, let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 through 13. He says this, for God is not unrighteous, <clears throat> for God is not unrighteous uh, uh, to forget your work and labor of love, which he has showed toward his name, and that, uh, that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, he reminds them that although God is not forgetting how much they're laboring for him and how much they're doing for him, uh, he's not going to forget that. He says, and don't be afraid to, to continue to be diligent. He, but he says this, but our hope is not found in our ability to labor for God. That's what he's letting them know. My how liberating it is for the church today to understand this. 
to understand that, listen, our hope is built on our promises, not our performance to God. And he's reminding them, look, God sees how much you're working and how much you're laboring, but remember, your hope is not in how much you labor for him. Your hope is built on something greater. And he says, now, by the way, I'm not telling you don't labor. And I'm not telling you don't be diligent. But I'm just letting you know, let your hope be in the right thing. Let your hope be in the right... You know, like for me, for example, I don't have to do what I'm doing. I don't have to pasture. I don't... It doesn't feed my ego. I just want people to know how wonderful the new covenant is. That's what I want them to understand. Because I truly believe it releases people. And I'm tired of seeing people crippled up. But here he's saying they're crippled up, but they're crippled up with trying to juggle old covenant and new covenant. And he's letting them know, listen, your hope needs to be in promises, but there's different promises now. It's God's promises to you, not your promises to him. In verse 13, we are reminded of the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. He says this, For when God made promises to Abraham, because he swore by no greater, he swore by himself. I find this kind of interesting. He was trying to get them to reconsider the Mosaic covenant throughout the book of Hebrews. Now he goes back and he's... He's going back to the Mosaic Covenant, and he's comparing the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. But here he goes back to the promise that was made to Abraham, which that's a whole different covenant. But we find here, let me go on here, get ahead of myself. He reminds him of the promise God made to Abraham, but not just the promises, but the very nature of the agreement that he made with him. Now, by the way, the... The Jews had a hard time with Gentiles being invited into the New Covenant. If you, if you question that, go to, go to Romans chapter 9 and 10, specifically 9. Paul's trying to get them to understand, listen, you guys have missed it. It was always about Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. It was always for God so loved the world and before you get too excited about your, your Jewish lineage and how much, your, how much your descendants tried to obey the promises of God, keep in mind this has always been God's original intent in the very nature of it. So let me go on here. He reminds them of the promise God made to Abraham, but not just the promise, but the very nature of the agreement. God swore to himself, or God made a promise to God that he would keep his promises to Abraham. Look at verse six. Uh, let me yeah, verse sixteen. Let's see here. Oh, lose my spot here. Not verse sixteen. We're here. Anyway, let me go on here. <clears throat> All right. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter four. That's where I was going. Romans four. Romans four one. Romans chapter 4. I got to hear Bibles. Oh, you, you know, you got phones. That's right. You know what I mean? Used to hearing Bibles going. I forgot. You know, it takes me two seconds to get to Romans 4. But anyway, let me go on here. Romans chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scriptures? 
Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of what? Debt or burden. Verse 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, we find Paul reminding them of the very same thing, that Abraham's belief is what made him righteous. Abraham believed God. And that's what made him righteousness. Abraham's faith is all that it took to receive the very promise. And we find in Hebrews chapter 6, he's bringing that out. He's bringing out that very promise, the very nature of the agreement, that if you just believe me, that's all that it takes. And he received the promises. You know, another thing too, if you study the book of Hebrews, and he's talking about sin, there's really only one sin that he's trying to get them to see and basically repent of. You know what that sin is? Unbelief. Unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Now, God's intentions was always for man to be motivated and to find hope and promises that he made uh, to himself towards us. So the very nature of the new covenant is this, that God made some promises. But God didn't just necessarily make a promise to us. That God could swear by no greater, he swore to himself, the Bible says. That God made a promise to God that he, yes, God swore to God. Think about that. God made a promise to God that he was going to keep the promise to us. And he could swear by no greater. Because it is impossible for God to what? Lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So number one was this, that our hope is built on promises, not on performance. Now, our hope, number two is this, our hope in God's promises should be or acts like an anchor to our soul. Now, this is very interesting. Hebrews chapter 17, and we'll read verse 20, says, Wherewith God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have looked at hope and where our hope should be, and what should be giving us hope, but, uh, but here we find the immediate effects of having your hope in the right area. So should our hope be in our ability to perform? No. Where should our hope be? In promises. Whose promises? Your promises to God? No, but God's promises to who? To ourselves, to us, and to himself. That's where our hope needs to be. Now, when you understand that that's the nature of the agreement of the new covenant, that God made a promise to himself that he is going to keep his promises, when you understand that your promises to him has, will not null and void the agreement, that God has, has made a promise and God keeps his promises and God's not going to lie, and you understand that, then guess what happens? You have a hope, and that hope is anchored somewhere. Now, let me go on here. We find that hope in God's promises acts like an anchor to the soul. Now, I grew up on the Gulf Coast. I grew up fishing, fishing in the Gulf. 
I can say that I have been towed in by the Coast Guard at least three times. I have been caught in many storms. I have broke down 40 miles out in the Gulf. I've got quite a few stories. I've fallen overboard literally three times. I didn't drown, by the way, if you're wondering. So, but I've been on the water quite a bit. And one thing that I have I've understood that there are some situations that, you know, you just, you know, when the storm comes up, you're not going to outrun it. You just have to kind of hunker down and kind of ride it out. And when that time comes, you're, you, you find out what is the real purpose of an anchor and, and how an anchor can kind of save your life. And as you, as you get out there and you see the storm coming and you realize you're not going to outrun it, and at the end of the day, you just know it's dark, and it's, it's, it's you know, I always think of, anybody seen Never Ending Story? Me and you think too much alike. You know, Atreyu, you know, the nothing's coming. You know what I mean? Here it comes. So you throw out your anchor, and the crazy thing is, is that storm comes, and it goes from being nice and calm and flat to, to you know, big waves up and down and and you wonder if you're in the same place but you throw that anchor out and what that anchor does is it holds your position in one place because you don't want to be washed further off course and although the very conditions around you has changed dramatically the very position has not changed at all and i find it interesting that he says that that these promises should, should these, this, this hope that we have acts like an anchor of the soul. I find it interesting that he says soul because it is the soul of us that has, you know what I mean, these changing tides all the time. The soul of us, our mind, our will, and our emotions. It's the soul that questions whether or not God knows what he's doing. It's the soul that has an issue when something doesn't work out the way we want. It's the soul that frets. It's our soul that we're constantly at the very mercy of because it responds to bad drivers, you know what I mean, in an unchristian-like manner. Because this world that we live in, one thing we can see is if, you know, it's like the weather in Alabama. If you don't like it, wait 10 minutes, it's going to be different. And the conditions of this world are constantly changing all the time. But we understand that our position never changes when it comes to God. And his position never changes when it comes to us. And that our hope needs to, our hope in the right place, even though my feelings and my, oh man, I don't feel righteous, Brother Ben, you just don't understand. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you feel. Our, we walk by faith and not by what? Sight or feeling. We don't let our soul take the wheel. Because there's days I feel righteous, and there's days that I don't feel righteous. Matter of fact, there's probably more days I don't feel righteous than days I do feel righteous. And that was kind of one of the things I realized, one of the revelations that, I that the Holy Spirit brought out to me in my approach to ministry, is I realized that my goal in ministry at the time I was more concerned about trying to make people feel righteous than getting them to understand what righteousness really is. Do you understand what I mean by that? You know, prescribing, you know what I mean, three, three, going to be at three services every week. You know what I mean? Read ten chapters in the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with going to church. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible. There's nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with handing out tracts. What's wrong is thinking that these things make me more righteous. That's the problem. 
That's a major problem. Because what happens when you stop doing those things? Or what happens when you can't do those things? Or what happens when you don't see the results that you would like to see? Your righteousness, which is the very core of your identity, takes a hit. And that's why we see this roller coaster. And that's why righteousness and understanding the very basics of what righteousness is. Righteousness is a gift. Righteousness is received. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. And I would love to say that after all these years of so-called gospel preaching churches, we'd be clear on righteousness. But listen, we're not. We are extremely confused. And who's reaping, who is reaping the consequences of that is your neighbor, your co-worker, and sometimes even you. But we, it doesn't have to be that way. We can change that. But here we find that our hope acts like an anchor to the soul. Now, it doesn't end there. Lastly, we see where our anchor is fastened. Now, he didn't just say our hope acts like an anchor to the soul. He says that that anchor is fastened into something. And by the way, I have been out before where you threw the anchor out and you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, everything's good. And next thing you know, you're drifting. You know what I mean? What happened? Well, the anchor pulled loose. You know, the anchor is only as good as where it's going to be fastened into. A good muddy bottom or stuck on a rock. Or in some cases, you can't even get the anchor up. I've had that happen before. But here we find that our anchor is fastened. He says it's sure and steadfast, but it's fastened into something. He says it's fastened into the veil. Into the veil. Now, what is he talking about here? Does it say veil? In, is it, what else what does it say in there? Has anybody else got another, other, something other than the King James? You know what I mean? Does it say veil in uh, y'all's Bible? Does it? You've got to give me something here. I just like this ain't telling me nothing. <laughs> There you go, curtain. Okay. All right. Now, here we go. Now, go to Leviticus chapter 15. Now, in order to get this answered, we go back to the Old Covenant. Go back to the Old Covenant here and we see something. Now, I find this kind of interesting because he was talking, he went from talking about the Abrahamic Covenant, and then he goes to the veil. Now, where do we find the veil mentioned? Well, this is the, this is the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. And I find this interesting because it's, it's, you know, when we think about our conditions constantly changing, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you, know, you know, sin is that way. So when we sin, it doesn't change our position with God. It, it makes us feel like un, we're unrighteous. It makes us feel like God is, that we're dirty and now God is distant. But here we go to the, the Levitical law, which was in essence dealing with sin. Now notice in, in verse uh, chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 15, it says this. He says, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring the blood within the veil, and do, that, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the children of the Israel, and because of their transgression and all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. The veil is what housed the blood of the innocent substitute and was the vessel that the high priest would carry to bring to the mercy seat. 
So if you read Levitical law, what they did is they brought their sacrifices and they shed the blood and they took the blood and they filled the veil with the blood of the innocent substitute. So here we have the high priest and he's got the veil filled with blood. Now what is he doing with this blood? He's going to go into the tabernacle and the ultimate destination is the holiest of holies and then he was going to dip down in there and he was going to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and then we know that he's going to come out and say it is finished and sins were atoned for how long? One year. One year. And outside, you know, the, the Israelites are looking in there saying, man, I hope he gets it done because I really need my sins atoned for this year. And he goes in there, and on the process that he's going in there, he, he's, and nobody could touch him. Man, until he went in and sprinkled that blood, nobody was, was able to touch, uh, touch the blood of the innocent substitute. And he goes in there. Now, let me go on here. Let me get ahead of myself. The Bible says in Hebrews that our, that anchor is anchored in that very blood. Why is that important to understand? Because God operates on a blood-based economy. That blood never changes. We know in the Old Testament all the blood of bulls and goats could do was atone. That word atone means to cover. But we know that Jesus' blood did something far greater than that. We can sing all day long, our sins are under the blood. But listen to me, brother and sister, your sins are gone. Like they've never been there before. Justified, just as if they had never happened before. Just if, it, just if the fruit had never been eaten in the garden. That there has been restoration has been made. And that's where your anchor is, in that blood. Aren't you glad it's a blood-based economy? Not blood and then how much you can confess and remember to confess. No, it's a blood-based economy. That was the only thing accepted in the Old Covenant. And that was the only thing accepted in the New Covenant, written in his own blood, as we find later in Hebrews. But I also find it interesting that... Go to John chapter 15, and I'll end here. We were talking about, in Leviticus, them carrying that blood to the mercy seat and not being able to be touched by man's hands. John chapter 15. Notice this, what Jesus said. Now what happened prior to this? Well, Jesus had been crucified. Jesus was in the tomb. Mary and them come to see Jesus, and they find that the tomb is open, and where's Jesus at? He's gone. And man, they don't know what's going on. I mean, last, they just wanted to, they just wanted to go and see his body, and they can't. He's gone now. But while they're there lamenting over all this, notice it says, And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seeketh thou? She supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master, Jesus saith unto her, what? Touch me not. I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Why is this important? Because he needed to apply his blood on the mercy seat in heaven for sins of mankind. And when he, when he was done, guess what Jesus did that other high priests did not do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the work was done. 
It was done. You know, he just went over there and sat down. There was no chair for the high priest to sit down in when they got done. It was only done for a year, but Jesus sat down by the right hand of the Father. Now, our hope, and I end with this statement, our hope and anchor is in the blood-based economy of God. And although sin may cause us to fear and doubt and even question our new nature, it does not diminish what Christ accomplished in the new covenant. Now, let me ask you, is your hope built on those promises? I hope it is. I hope, you're, I hope that when you're like me and the conditions of planet Earth change, and they so often do, and it gets our souls fretting and worrying, and I hope we can go back, take a step back, and reflect that we have a God that knows what he's doing. And we have a God that made some promises. And that we have entered into that agreement. And God is going to keep his promise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being a part of your economy. And Father, so often it's easy for, for us to allow the, the gospel of the soul to try to drive us. But Lord, you didn't give us a gospel of the soul. You gave us the gospel of the spirit. And Lord, may we just be able to lean back and rest on your Holy Spirit. And, and we're, just, we're used to just allowing to just walk by flesh and just to, just to fret and jump on the bandwagon of worry and fretting and wondering. And, but Lord, help us just to lean back and realize we have that hope like an anchor of the soul that's anchored in that very blood that not just covers, but Lord, completely washed our sins away. And Lord, we are not our feelings. Lord, we are exactly what you said we are. And we thank you so much for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.